All right, so here we go. We are, we are kicking off our Ephesians uh, study today. I'm excited. Ephesians is one of my favorite epistles, and I have wanted to do this for a long time, so I'm, I'm very excited about it. And I wanted to start the epistle uh, by going back and taking a look at the foundation of the church as it is recorded here in Acts 19. So this is where it all began. It's, it's chronicled for us here. The letter, of course, would come later after the church had been established and Paul had moved on. So we'll move into looking at the actual letter in our next study. But in, in doing this, I want to focus on what the church was in that community, in Ephesus, and on what the church is intended by God to to be in every community today. And so as we look at Ephesus, what we're going to see is that things aren't really that much different today than they were back then. Now, of course, there are some ways where they're obviously different. They didn't have electricity. They didn't have the technology that we have and so forth. But we're going we're gonna to see that in, in many ways, culturally and certainly spiritually, there wasn't a whole lot of difference. So Ephesus, the capital and port city of the Roman province of Asia, located on the western coast of what we now call Turkey. Ephesus was the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire with a population of close to 500,000 people. So a very significant city. The city was home to many idolatrous temples. The most famous of them was the temple of Artemis. Artemis was also known as Diana. Now, Ephesus was a, it was a commercial center. It was a place where there was lots of trade. It was in sort of in the middle between the east and the west. And so there, there was all kinds of commercial activity uh, going on in the city. It was a city that was given over to idolatry. The, the temple to Artemis or to Diana was just the most magnificent of the temples, but there were multitudes of temples in the city. And it was also a city that was given over to sexual immorality. We know that from history. We know that from the contents of the letter that Paul wrote to them. He has to address uh, many things that would fall under that category of sexual immorality but it was also a city that was steeped in the occult, a city that was steeped in the occult, witchcraft and Satanism, magic and those kinds of things. It was a center for those things. But here's what I want us to understand. It was into this environment that the apostle went with the gospel to establish a church. You see, as we think about that kind of an environment, and as we realize, you know, our culture's becoming more and more like that as time passes, you know, really, this is the ideal environment for the gospel. This is what the gospel went into originally. And so we need to understand that this is, this is where the church needs to be. The church needs to be right in the center of this type of stuff because the church is really nothing less than a base of operation for God from which his kingdom can be advanced. That's the picture that we need to 
uh, have of the church. That's how we need to understand the church. The church is not in to be this passive, uh, just sort of staying out of the way, isolated group of people that just get together to, you know, just feel better uh, every now and again. That, that's not the, the biblical picture of the church. The biblical picture is that the church is God's earthly base of operation for the advancement of his kingdom. That's what we see in this church in Ephesus. That's what we see as we look at the establishing of the church. And that's what we want to see in our churches today. So we're going to take and just look at this 19th chapter. And I'm going to point out some things to you. And and in it, we really get a picture of what God intends the church to be. And so five things. Number one, the church is to be a place where believers can grow in their understanding of God's truth and experience his power. So look with me again at verses two through six. So Paul says to them when he comes to Ephesus, this small group, 12 men gathered there. Um, the synagogue, you, you couldn't start a Jewish synagogue without 10 males. So they've got 12 Oftentimes, early churches were modeled after synagogues, so they've got a church. It's a small church. It's 12 people. So Paul comes to them. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, we have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. He said to them, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him whom would come after him uh, on Christ Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. So you see what happens? And here we have a picture. What is the church to be? It's a place where believers can grow in their understanding of God's truth and experience his power. So Paul comes, he finds these people, they're believers, but they don't know much. And you know, that's the reality with many believers. There are many people who have put their faith in Jesus but they don't know much. And of course, in the beginning, we don't know much. But we're needing to grow. We're needing to be instructed. And that's what a church is to be, a place where people are instructed. And thank God we've got this wonderful legacy, this, this fantastic history of biblical instruction from this pulpit here. That's right. That's what it is to be. And there are lots of people out there. You know, it's amazing. And it's, it's tragic in some ways, the, the biblical ignorance among many Christians. Many Christians just don't know. They don't know their Bibles. They don't really, like, like this group, they didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. They didn't even know there was such an experience as the empowering of the Spirit. So the church... Part of the reason the church exists, part of the reason why God plants churches and communities is so that believers can grow in their understanding of God's truth. But notice, it wasn't simply instructing them. Paul did that. He taught them what they needed to know to to advance in their knowledge. But then it says he prayed prayed for them and they experienced the power of the Spirit. And you see, a church should be a place where people can come and be instructed and at the same time experience the power of God. When you walk through these doors, and you know, let me just clarify, the church, of course, is us, the people, but 
this is the, the place where we meet. And it should be the case that when you walk through these doors, you sense the presence of God, that you experience the power of God, that you sometimes you're just sitting there, you're listening and suddenly you, you, God is touching you. He might be healing you. He might be speaking powerfully to you. Something like that might happen. That should happen. You know, we pray. My, one of my primary prayers when, especially when we gather like this, one of my primary prayers is for the presence of the Lord to be sensed among us. Because you know, when God's presence is here, there's something powerful about that. There's something amazing about that. And of course, hopefully that gets communicated through the preaching, but not just through the preaching, through just sitting here and singing songs to the Lord, we should be experiencing his presence and his power, right? Well, that's what God desires in a church. That's what happened in this first Christian assembly in Ephesus. But secondly, I want you to notice this, that the church in Ephesus and the church today should be a place where skeptics, unbelievers, and seekers can hear a reasonable presentation of the faith. Look with me at verses 8 through 10. Speaking of Paul, and he went into the synagogue and he spoke boldly for three months. Listen to this word, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. But when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, he departed from them and withdrew the disciples. Listen, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. And this continued for two years so that all who dwelt in Asia, the province of Asia, Everybody who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. That is amazing that the gospel went out, a, a reasonable presentation of the gospel. You know, a church should be a place where the skeptic can come. You have atheistic friends, agnostic friends, skeptical friends, bring them to church. We'll talk to them. We'll share with them. But you see, the message itself has to be a reasoned message. People should come and be able to be challenged intellectually and have to think through things. You know what the, the, the general perception of Christians by the outside culture is that when we come to church, there's a little place before you get into the church where you put your brain you set your brain there in a box and you don't collect it again until after the church service is over. That's a, that's a perception that people have of Christians in the culture. It's absolutely wrong. It's not true, is it? But, you know, there, there must be some reason why uh, people think that way. And sometimes it is because uh, we as Christians, we're not thinking hard enough. We're not doing our homework. We're not, uh, we're not using the brain See, God created our brains too. And we want to engage people on that kind of a level. And what we're talking about here, where in the first point, we're talking about the church being a place of teaching and a place of experiencing God in worship. Now we're talking that the church is also to be a place from which apologetics take place. Apologetics is the defense of the faith. And we need to defend the faith. And we need to be... Uh, from the pulpit, we need to be giving you good information that you can assimilate and you can use to defend the faith as you're out in a, a hostile environment. 
I thank God again that we have a history of that here, and we want to continue with that history. We want to build on that history. A few months ago, we had uh, our apologetics conference that we have every year, the Veritas Annual Conference, and we had some of the great uh, minds of the faith here. We had Ravi Zacharias who came and spoke, and Ravi's a He's a brilliant man. He's very articulate, and he, he has a strong appeal to uh, the university student. He has a strong appeal to the person who's more uh, academically or intellectually oriented, and, and God's using him in an amazing way, in a powerful way. On the night that Ravi spoke, this church was fuller than I have seen it in 20 years. It was absolutely amazing. So many, you know, we talk about young people. This place was packed. The aisles I thank God the, the fire department never came out because uh, we would have been shut down that night. I mean, it was like the stories, you know, maybe you've heard stories of when the days when youth used to be sitting here and it was all crowded in the aisles. Well, that was it a few months ago. But that's, you see, there's a, there's a hunger in the culture right now. We, America has been influenced over the past 30 years um, by Europe and, and Americans have become more philosophical than they used to be. You know, we have been known nationally uh, as, a, as a people as being more pragmatic. You know, we're not so concerned about thinking through the philosophy of it. What we're concerned about is, hey, does it, do, does it work? If it works, let's just do it. We don't need to think about it. The Europeans have, you know, historically been a little more um, philosophically oriented. But that's kind of shifted, especially with the younger culture today. A lot of people having these philosophical ideas and questions. And then we've got the bombardment from the, uh, the atheists, the so-called intellectuals, the ones who think they're smarter than everybody else in the culture. Well, you know, they're not as smart as they think they are. And God has good reasoned responses to their questions. And the church is to be a place where reasonable presentation of the faith is taking place. That's what Paul is doing. Now, why am I emphasizing this? You know, believe it or not, there are some people that would say, well, you know, that's a waste of time. You shouldn't, you, you know, you don't need to do that. Well, Paul seemed to think that we did need to do it. That's what he did. He reasoned with people. He reasoned from the scriptures. He reasoned from history. He reasoned with the philosophers and he showed them what was the truth. And so that's what a church should be. Thirdly, the church is to be a place where miracles are witnessed. Now, here's what happens quite often in the church, bigger picture church. Here's what happens quite often. You get these two extremes. You get the one side that says, no, no, no. We, uh, it's all about the intellect. It's all about apologetics. It's all about, you know, reasoned arguments and and all of that. I, I just obviously said I'm into that but not to the extreme. And some people are just completely over in that side saying, this is all we need. But then you get the other extreme over there going, oh, no, no, we don't need any of that. All we need is the miracles. All we need is the power. All we need is an experience with God. Listen, we need both. We need it all. We need everything. We need, yes, a strong apologetic in our culture today. But you know what? We need miracles. We need God to be doing supernatural things. And the church should be a place where you come in with the expectation of supernatural experiences. Because after all, we're dealing with God. And that's a supernatural thing there. 
So we should expect that. And this is what we see here. Look at uh, verses 11 and 12. It says, now God worked unusual miracles by the hand of Paul. So notice what's happening. He's instructing the young believers. They're experiencing the power of God. He's reasoning with the skeptics. But also there's this there's this additional thing. God is doing miracles through Paul. Unusual miracles, it says, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons were brought from his body to the sick and the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out of them. Listen, there's a spiritual realm and there's the the spiritual realm in which God is operating and there's that spiritual realm in which uh, the forces of darkness are operating and those things are in conflict. If we think we can fight the devil merely with our brains, we're in for a big disappointment. We need the power of God. We need the miraculous power of God. We need to see those kinds of things. And listen, God is still doing miracles today. Don't ever let anybody tell you that God doesn't do miracles. He still does. One of the greatest miracles you'll ever see is a a converted soul. That's a massive miracle. But God still does miracles today. He does miracles of healing. He does miracles of provision. I mentioned Ravi Zacharias a few minutes ago. Well, here, as I said, here's a man with a brilliant intellect. And, you know, when he goes onto university campuses, which he does practically every day, uh, he's, you know, appealing largely to the intellect, but not exclusively that, for he himself is a person who's experienced the miraculous. And he tells a story of something that happened to him where uh, he has a friend who, uh, and and he he describes his friend as as one of the most mild-mannered and and subdued type of people. He's a friend from Singapore. And um, Ravi comes, uh, he lives in Atlanta, Georgia. And he gets a call one morning. He's about to go off on a five-week speaking tour. And there's only a few hours between uh, the time he gets this call and the time of you know, his departure to the airport. But this, this friend calls who's from Singapore, but who happens to be in Atlanta. And he says, Ravi, uh, I've been praying for you. And I really, I would like to meet with you today. I'd like to talk with you. Um, and Ravi says, you know what? I'd love to, I'd love to see you, but I, you know, I'm on my way for five weeks. I, I just can't. And the guy says, listen, the Lord has given me something for you. And he, and he said this, he said, Ravi, I wake up every morning and before I ever get out of bed, he said for a half an hour, for 30 minutes, I lie in bed and I say, God, speak to me. That's all I do, he said. I, I just lie there, God, speak to me. And he said, and God spoke to me a few days ago and he spoke to me about you and I, and I need to get together with you. I need to tell you what God said. And so Ravi agreed. He said, okay, I, I, I'll meet with you. So he says, he goes and he meets with this man and the man says, I think he explained to him then what happened about, you know, God speaking to him. And, and he says, now, I want to tell you what God said. Number one, God said that the anointing upon your life is going to increase in the days ahead, that there's going to be more uh, great ministry to come. And the Lord wants you to know that. He wants you to be encouraged by that. And so Ravi listens and he takes that in and he says, yes, okay. You know, I, I receive that. And then the man says, he says, now, here's the other thing. Number two. He said, as I was praying for you, 
God said to let you know that although you will always have a thorn in your flesh, like Paul did, although you'll always have a thorn in your flesh, God wants you to know that he's going to take care of it three, four, five. He's going to take care of it, Ravi, three, four, five. And so Ravi's sitting there and he's like, all of a sudden, tears come to his eyes. Because for 27 years, he has lived with severe back pain. And it's in those discs that he has, through those discs, three, four, five, that, that, the L disc, three, four, five, that he has a titanium rod. And living in constant pain. And the man says, Ravi, the Lord said, don't worry about that. He's going to take care of it. And so the man prayed for him. Ravi left. He went home. He told his wife everything that happened. They both marveled at it. And then he left for the airport. When he passed through the, um, you know, the thing that you go through, that I go through all the time, but I can't remember what it's called right now. (laughs) The security check, please. (laughs) And, you know, they make you do what? They make you take off your shoes. So as he went through collected his shoes on the other side. And as he put his shoes on, he said normally he would, you know, bring his leg up to him. He found himself bending down to tie his shoe. And suddenly it struck him. He cannot bend down to tie his shoe. Wait, what am I doing? Bending down, tying my shoe. I'm tying my shoe. And he said from that day forward, he gave a date, May 29th. I don't know what year. He said he's never had he, he's, he's been off of all pain medication since that day. So that's a miracle. That's a miracle. And you see, I'm, I'm combining it intentionally with a guy who's, you know, very in, intellectual in one sense, but yet at the same time, there's the miraculous. We need both things. And God is doing miracles. Last night at the end of the prayer week, uh, the last thing we did is we, we just opened it up for prayer for those who needed a physical touch from God. And seriously, I thought, you know, just a few people were going to come and so many people responded. So many people have those kinds of needs. People standing in for other people. We need to come into a church and expect supernatural things. You need to be able to come here expecting, you know, when you walk through these doors and you are desperate and you're saying, God, I have got to hear from you. You know what? You're going to hear from God because he speaks supernaturally. He will do that for you. That's what he does. We believe that. That's what a church is to be. It's a place where miracles are witnessed. Fourthly, the church is to be a place where the devil is seen to be defeated. The devil is defeated, but it doesn't look like it when you look around the world, does it? You know? I mean, seriously, don't you think sometimes it's like, wait, Lord, are you sure you're winning this battle? I mean, it, you know, it's kind of looking a bit uh, bleak here. But when you look around at the world, that's what you see. Seems like the devil's he just got it all wrapped up. He's got the government in his hand. He's got the, the uh, educational system in his hand. He's got all these things. He's got it all under control. It's all his philosophy. It's all his ideas. It's all, you know, humanistic and anti-God. It's like, wow, Lord, are there, are there any places where we can see you having a victory? Absolutely. And it's in the church 
that we're to see that. Look at what we see here in the starting of this church in Ephesus. Look with me at uh, verses 13 through 20. Well, the end of verse 12 says, um, remember that uh, the evil spirits went out of people through the ministry of Paul. It says then in verse 13, though, then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, we exorcise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. Also, there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, who did so. The evil spirit answered and said, Jesus, I know, and Paul, I know, but who are you? Then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Listen, this became known both to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on them all and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. And many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. Also, many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted up the value of them and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. The devil was seen to be defeated in Ephesus and in the church today, this is the place where the devil is seen to be defeated, that his power is broken over the lives of people. And that's why I want you to, to tune in, to come out, to be part of Sunday night and to listen to the testimonies of people whose lives have been set free from the power of Satan, because that's what's happening. That's where we see how the devil has been defeated, isn't it? So often we see it in the life of a person. You know, there are people in this church who were the servants of Satan. We all were to some degree, obviously, right? But there were some people that, man, they were tight with the devil. They were like his right-hand people in some cases. And they were bound by him and held captive in their sin and in their addictions and in their violence and those things. And, and to look at them and to see how Christ has set them free, it's so powerful, it's so awesome. We see so often in testimonies, that's where we see that the devil has been defeated. His rule over this person's life has been broken. Jesus has set them free. And that's what we are to be seen in the church. And then fifthly, the church is to be a place where people are turned away from idols to worship and serve the true and the living God. Look at verses 23 through 27. About that time, there arose a great commotion about the way. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Diana, brought no small profit to the craftsmen. He called them together with the workers of similar occupation and said, men, you know that we have our prosperity by this trade. Moreover, you see and hear that not only at Ephesus, but throughout almost all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people saying that they are not gods which are made with hands. So not only is this trade of ours in danger of falling into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificence destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worships. You know what? We live in a culture of idolaters. Idol worship is still alive and well in the United States of America. 
Idol worship is alive and well all around the world. If a person's not worshiping the living God, the true God, the Lord Jesus Christ, then they're an idolater in some fashion or another. But here's what happens. The church is to be a place where people go from being the worshipers of idols to being the servants of the true and the living God. And what we're talking about here is transformation. The church is a place where we see people's lives transformed. And that is such an amazing thing. It's such a wonderful thing. And I'm so excited about this Thursday night. This Thursday night when Ryan comes with the group and the whosoever's, you know, this is what we're seeing with this group. We're seeing, we're seeing lives transformed. We're seeing people come out of uh, drug abuse. We're seeing people come out of the occult. We're seeing people come out of uh, sexually perverted lifestyles. We're seeing people come out of all kinds of darkness. And that's what a church is to be. Listen, the church is to be a place where saints come to be refreshed and built up, but it's also to be a place where sinners can come and be saved, to be challenged. And our doors have to be open to all kinds of people, right? You know, the danger that happens in a church, and it happens so often, is we, we get into this little thing like, well, this is just our club, and oh, the world's so bad out there, and we just, you know, we want to huddle together, a holy little huddle, and just stay away from all the corruption out there. That's not the picture. Of course, the church is a place to come and be refreshed. Yes, it is that, but it's not just that. When I began to pastor a little church down in Vista, California, and I went in and we began pastoring a church of 25 or 30 people. And, uh, you know, after six months or so, the church had grown to, you know, a couple hundred people. And, and I remember that some, some people from that group, they came to me and they said, you know, you have ruined our church. You ruined it. We didn't want all of these people to come. We, we liked it the way it was. We were happy. We had a nice little family thing going here, and you wrecked it. I said, well, look, you know, you got to take it up with God, because I didn't really do it, you know? I just am teaching the word. I'm just preaching the gospel. But, you know, it's easy to get this kind of mentality, well, this is our thing, and, and we like it this way, and, well, you know, I'm comfortable with this. This is not about what we're comfortable with. That's not the point of the church. The church, as I said, the church is God setting up a base of operation in the midst of enemy territory. And the base of operation, that's a military idea that we're talking about. We're in a war. We're in a battle for souls. And it's not about my comfort. It's not about my ease. It's not about, well, you know, that's not the point. We've got to get over that. And so those doors have to swing wide open. And we have got to welcome all of the people from the culture and let them be challenged. Yes, bring in the new believers and let them be built up in the faith and experience God. But bring in the skeptics. Let them come. Let those unbelievers come, yes. The atheists and the agnostics. Let the seekers come and let them hear. Let those who are desperate for, I need something. I, I'm, I'm a materialist, but, but it's not fulfilling my life. Let them come and experience something beyond the material, the supernatural. 
You see, that's what we're to do. And again, going back to what I was saying about Ryan and the, the thing on Thursday nights, I, I'm excited about the prospects there. You know, many years ago, C.T. Studd, who was a well-known missionary uh, to uh, Africa, India, prior to that. He was a, he was a famous um, cricket player at uh, the University of Cambridge. And he was also, um, he was heir to a, to a great fortune. And um, he came to faith through the ministry of D.L. Moody as a, as a cricket player at Cambridge. And he, um, he left his fortune behind and he went to the mission field. He went with Hudson Taylor to India. And then later he went to Africa. When he was 70 years old, he went to Africa. No mission society would send him. They said, you're too old, it's over, you did it, you know the mission thing, you can't go, we're not gonna send you. So you know what? He went down, he found a ship that would take him to Africa, he went by himself. And he started a whole new mission work at the age of 70 in Africa. But this is what he said. He said, some people want to minister in the shadow of a church steeple. He said, I wanna run a rescue boat to the gate of hell. Now, not everybody wants to run a rescue boat to the gate of hell, but some people do, (laughs) and God bless them because they need rescue boats at the gate of hell, right? People are going to hell, and somebody's got to go rescue them, and I thank God for Ryan, and I thank God for what's happening with this, this, this whosoever group because that's what they're doing. Ryan sent me a photo yesterday. There's a band and I won't bother to say what the name of it is. Um, but he was, he was in Las Vegas on New Year's Eve, and he saw this band, and uh, the, the brother of the lead singer, Ryan, spent much of the evening sharing the gospel with this guy. And so this guy sent Ryan a photo yesterday, and Ryan forwarded it to me. Sent him a photo. Uh, he, he's standing there with a whosoever shirt on. He's like this, and he's saying, you know, my life has been destroyed through pornography and, and drugs and things like that, but man, you know, I'm, I'm turning it over to Jesus, and, and I'm turning it around. And I thought, yeah, this is the guy. These are the people. These are the ones that we want to reach. I prayed, Lord, just reach down and, and just take the most radical, the most radical of sinners and save them and make them your servants. That's what God did with Paul. Paul could go into Ephesus, this, this place that was <coughs> steeped in idolatry and steeped in materialism and steeped in sexual immorality and occultism. He could go there. And you know why he could go? Because he had so radically experienced God's power himself. He said about himself, I am the chief of sinners. God could save me, he could save anybody. So he went to Ephesus fully expecting that God was gonna save sinners just like himself. And that's to be the heart and the attitude of the church. What God did in Ephesus through his church amidst the materialism, idolatry, sexual impurity, and occultism, may he do through us, his church in Orange County, California, in this day, in this generation. And that's my prayer, and that's, our hope, and that's what we're doing. And may God bless us to that end. And I'm excited, as I said, about teaching this uh, epistle to the Ephesians. There's so much in here. We'll talk about it next week, but uh, it's just, it's such a beautiful uh, picture for us of the Christian life. And as you can see on the image that we've had, the wealth, the walk, the warfare of the Christian, all 
Those are the things that are centered on in the epistle. Those are the things that we'll be looking at in the days ahead. Lord, we thank you for your grace that saved us. We thank you, Lord, that you're still moving, that you're still working, that you are the living God and you're calling people to yourself. You're calling them out of idolatry. Lord, you're still defeating the devil in people's lives today. Oh, how we thank you for that great truth. Thank you, Lord, that you haven't ceased doing miracles. You're still working miraculously. And God, thank you that there are good, strong, uh, intelligent, intellectual responses to the skeptics that we can give. Thank you, Lord, that your word helps us to grow and to increase in our understanding and to become stronger. Thank you, Lord, that we can experience your presence. And that's what we're praying for ourselves here as we move forward as a congregation, as we move forward in our study of this epistle to the Ephesians, we pray for your blessing. And while our heads are bowed today and our eyes are closed, and if you're with us and you've never met Jesus Christ, you've never had this life-changing encounter that I've been talking about up here, but somehow you got here today. Maybe you've been here before, but you know that you've not really met the Lord. I heard a story last night on the radio with an interview with Sherry Youngward. She was 18 years old. She had been doing drugs and alcohol since she was in the fourth grade. Grew up with parents who were completely liberal in the Bay Area. And she said that it was a friend's mom who was a Christian who grabbed her hand one day in the kitchen and said, pray this prayer with me. And she prayed a simple prayer to receive Jesus. And she said that minute she met God and changed her life forever. And for those of you today that don't know the Lord, you can't say, I've met this God. He has changed my life. He is changing my life. If you want to meet him today, I want to give you the chance to do that. So our heads are bowed. Our eyes are closed. If that's you, you say, I want this Jesus that can defeat the devil in my life. I want this Jesus that can transform me. I want this Jesus that has miraculous power. If that's you, I want you to raise your hand up and I want to pray for you. And you're going to meet the Lord today. God bless you. You can put your hand down once you've raised it. Anybody else? Just slip your hand up. God bless every one of you. That's great. Father, thank you for these that have raised their hand, indicating their desire. Now, Lord, you know their heart. You hear their cry. And as they just ask you, Jesus, forgive my sins. Come into my life. Be my Lord. Meet them right now, here today, in a powerful way, like you did, Sherry, and so many others. And Lord, may they know your love leading them the rest of their lives. Amen.